and exalt in the faith delivered once for all to the saints and has been passed down in the Anglican tradition. I'm Father David Bumstead, the rector of Emmanuel Episcopal Church in the Audubon Park neighborhood of Orlando, Florida, and I'm joined as always by my giddy co-host... Father Matthew Ainsley, the vicar of All Souls Episcopal Church, a church plant in Horizon West, Florida. We're real priests with real jobs and real churches. Service times are in our bio. We'd love for you to join us for worship if you're ever in town with us. Woo! Oh my god. Here gosh. we are. We're in. We made it in. We made it in. Father Matt is absolutely ecstatic for today's podcast episode, um, which we have nicknamed the Velocirapture, which you will you will learn about a little bit more about why he's so giddy and more about the rapture, I guess, here in just a little <laughs> bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, but first, uh, just a, a weird a weird thing happened to me uh, at church this Sunday, Father Matt. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, so at, at Emmanuel, um, the the parish has not used Sancta spells since its uh, since its formation. Uh, it's something that I would really love to do, but uh, heretofore have not had a lot of uh, progress yet in, in introducing it. But uh, during the elevations at the Eucharist, there was a curious sound that emanated from the congregation, the sound of the iPhone text bell at the elevations, <laughs> like, <laughs> like at at the appropriate timing and, and, uh, and pattern. So three? So three, yeah. So kind of like a ding, like a ding, a ding, ding and a ding. ding. Yeah, nice. Exactly. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Several parishioners saw my delight and commented after. Uh, and then I wondered if someone was trolling me from the congregation in a very, I would say, good-humored way. Uh, but it turns out, no. Uh, at the end, as we were doing the receiving line and laughing with my retired associate, uh, Father Rob, uh, we were like, what was that? And it was a parishioner actually receiving three text messages. So it was a bit of serendipity, if not providence. I would say providence, yeah. <laughs> God taking care of his church. There we go. Yeah, I was pretty, was pretty happy with it. But, uh, you know, mm-hmm. mm, it strikes us that we live in Orlando. We do. We say that often. Mm. And here we are in central Florida. We are distant in a lot of ways, from some of the many people that we would like to speak with on this podcast, by telephone or or Skype, I guess what I'm getting at, Father Matt, is what would what would it take for us to have a better capacity to bring our listeners better content? Got to get some equipment. Got to get some equipment. Yeah. So I think what we're going to do over the next uh, little while is we're going to uh, explore the system on Patreon so that we can uh, better uh, interact with some of our listeners, but also so that we can, you know, slowly but surely raise some funds outside of our church general budgets uh, so that we can so that we can uh, get some better equipment. Yeah, I tried to get the sacristy line item pass uh, at the annual, so well meeting, the annual you meeting. Know. <laughs> What's this? What is that? <laughs> but it really wouldn't take a lot. No. But just a, a little studio. When I say little studio, don't imagine the Joe Rogan podcast. Every He's looking at week, me. Every week. He's he gets so mad when I bring it up. <laughs> but yeah, we're not talking about some big operation. Um, but just having a, having a mixer where you can do phone calls and, and plug computers in, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. That way we can have 
we have a lot of people that live in Florida, but that way we could have guests that live elsewhere and it doesn't sound terrible. I know you've right. all listened maybe to radio programs or to podcasts where people call in and it's like, <laughs> yeah, we're not trying to do that. But. And, and that's, that can be really kind of a frustrating listening experience. And that's right. And we definitely want to bring, we've said many times we want to bring more guests on and that would be a great way for us to be able to do that from here in the very amenable, but somewhat distant central Florida yeah. wilds out here. So yeah, uh, listeners, if you're interested in that, please pray for us and um, just know that we definitely appreciate your support and we definitely appreciate a bunch of new listeners from all over the country and world. So uh, every every time we put out content, we're just pleasantly surprised by yeah. how far it's reaches. So thank you so much for everybody who's listening. So we're going to talk about the rapture. You can tell that this is kind of a struggle for me. Yeah, we'll get into a little bit of biography. Sure. But you didn't grow up in the heyday of... I grew up in it. I missed it. But you weren't in church when, like, when I say things like A Thief in the Night or no. Gary Busey and movies about the tribulation. No. Or Kirk Cameron in these movies? I remember seeing okay. that. We're getting ahead of ourselves. But so let's. But it let's, doesn't ring a bell, but 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 that was actually a big part of uh, my life. I was very much into these buzzwords, dispensationalism, rapture theology, fascinating. Eschatolo- eschatology. Fascinating so we're gonna we're gonna talk about all that today and, and hopefully in broad brushstrokes give the shape of a proper Orthodox Christian biblical eschatology. And what we do, what do we mean by eschatology before we get into the calendar? Well, eschatology, just the etymology would be the study of last things. And that, as we'll see, can just be sort of pigeonholed into the end of the world. <laughs> but when we... T- God, here we go. <laughs> and that is proper to talk about... Yeah, of course. Our yeah. death... Heaven, hell, and the last judgment. Those are sort of the four pillars of eschatology. But eschatology should not just be um, what people think of as, as the apocalypse or World War Z or whatever. Right. It's, it's really where is history headed? And really, eschatology always has to intersect with teleology. Is what is our purpose? What is our, our highest goal? What is our end as human beings? Which Excellent. we're going to get into uh, in, just, in just a moment. And as we think about um, history and how important the lives of the saints are in the history of the church and therefore all of human history, let's uh, just take a couple of minutes and go through uh, the church calendar for the week of five Epiphany and beyond. Father Matt, the Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Let us pray. Set us free, O God, from the bondage of our sins, and give us, we beseech thee, the liberty of that abundant life which thou hast manifested to us in thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So briefly, walking through the calendar, uh, February 13th, the church remembers Absalom Jones, who was a freed slave who was uh, called into church service. He faced intense racism. Uh, he was a priest, uh, a minister in the late 
seventeenth uh, and early nineteenth. Uh, excuse me, late late eighteenth and early nineteenth century. He founded the Free African Society with Richard Allen, another important um, early American pastor. Uh, founded Saint. Thomas African Church in Pennsylvania, and he was, in fact, the first black man ordained to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church. His story is absolutely incredible. Uh, Episcopalians throughout the country celebrate him on Absalom, Absalom Jones Day, and um, it's, uh, it's a great day to remember him and his, uh, and his witness. So uh, if you are around one, I recommend that observance. On February 14th, it's St. Valentine's Day. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he was a person, right? St. Valentine? He was a, like a legendary person? or Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, he was I, like, I stabbed in the heart or something like that. Yeah, I don't remember everything off the top of my head. But yeah, it, it does re- relate back to uh, a, a real saint. Yeah. Call me off guard. No, I, I, I'm way past them. I'm ready for that. I'm ready for the rapture. <laughs> I know he is. On February 14th, actually, the, the, the church remembers Cyril and Methodius. Uh, there, one was a monk and one was a bishop. They're missionaries to the Slavs. They uh, invented Cyrillic for the purposes of translating the Bible and other religious texts. Um, important use of a language called Church Slavonic, which is still in use throughout uh, Slavic countries. A beautiful language, especially chanted. And on February 15th, the church remembers Thomas Bray, who was a priest and missionary, represented the Bishop of London as his commissary in the Maryland colony in the 18th century. Worked for the children's catechism. He was desperate for people to recognize the churches need a lot of structural help, both in their ministries and in their physical plants. His ministry among Native Americans and African slaves was uh, ahead of its time. And in the UK, in his home, country he worked for the humanitarian improvement of prisons so thomas bray missionary and priest all right i can't hold him back any longer guys <laughs> it's it's he's ready to pop all right so this episode is entitled the velocirapture yeah and i think that's a reference to a movie that came out last year called the velocipastor well it's i mean it's just kind of i don't know if it's a reference i just thought it was funny but sure which uh i'm on imdb right now and there there's a movie called velocipastor this is a real thing and and here here's the summary after losing his parents a priest travels to china where he inherits a mysterious ability that allows him to turn into a dinosaur. At first horrified by this new power, a prostitute convinces him to use it to fight crime and ninjas. We have to watch that. Truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, we need to watch that. Uh, Maybe we'll live stream our viewing. That that movie exists is... Pure mm, bliss. True providence. Maybe. Well, Father Matt, here we go. All right. This day has come. It is here. So full disclosure, (laughs) Father David doesn't want to be doing this right now. (laughs) I do. He he begrudgingly. Not begrudgingly. I mean, he didn't take my calls for four or five days. (laughs) And I've just been, man, just itching to do this. It's only because, as Father Matt said, I didn't didn't grow up in, in any church. So there's a lot of this stuff that is completely over my head. It really breaks my sort of genteel, tiny Christian Anglican upbringing. So 
there's going to be a lot of times where I, I don't mean to laugh, but I definitely mean to sound confused because this is all <laughs> so new in a lot of ways still. So, Well, let's just start with uh, the basics. You've got a cocktail napkin yeah. in front of you. Yeah. And when you think of eschatology and the return of Christ. Sure. What, what are the, what are the big things well, like, for you that you see in scripture and in the tradition, capital T? Sure. This is kind of like what I'm calling my cocktail napkin eschatology. Like if someone in a social setting was like, how does this thing work? This is sort of the broadest steps I would, I would take. I would say that, uh, at, at a time appointed, um, you know, no one knows the date or the time except for the father. It says, uh, it says, says Jesus in the gospels, but, um, at the appointed time, the second advent happens, Christ returns, and he come, He will come, as the creed says, to judge the living and the dead. I believe there's definitely a scriptural warrant in the New Testament for a general resurrection, and a resurrection to life, and a resurrection, sadly, to death. Uh, this resurrection to life is a function of the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, uh, talked about by Paul and alluded to in the, in the Gospels and um, definitely in some ways described in the book of Revelation. Uh, I think the city of God, the new Jerusalem, is established in its fullness. And this new Jerusalem is where we, the church, the, the redeemed people of God, will worship the Lamb in his fullness. Uh, we will be able to have uh, direct commun- communion and community with him. And in so do uh, in in that process, our bodies will be transformed, perfected into spiritual bodies, whatever that means from Thessalonians. But they'll be better than what we've got now, uh, because they'll be the fullness of what God had in mind for us in the beginning, untouched by sin and death. And so that's why and where we will enjoy and participate in the beatific vision of God. That's good. Okay, is that not too bad? No, that's great. I mean, when we're talking about the faith delivered once for all the saints. The important thing is Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And then in the Nicene Creed, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And that's what we need to focus on. Of course, being uh, attentive uh, to scripture and to the words of our Lord and the words of the apostles and other writers of scripture uh, you know, when it's talking about the return of Christ, I mean, the book of Revela- Revelation, as uh, confusing as it, it can be, um, you're promised, uh, the Apostle John promises a special blessing yeah. uh, in the first chapter for, for reading that. So we don't want to say, well, this is all kind of weird and odd, and there's people saying things I don't really understand, and so let's just forget about it. Uh, but at the same time... Um, not getting so down in the weeds that we become dogmatic, especially outside of the clear teaching of scripture and the tradition of the church about the particular uh, details. Cause we can really, really get down uh, in, in the weeds. So that's the important thing to uh, remember. And some of you, I don't know how many of you listening, uh, you, you might be offended by this podcast. Uh, Cause uh Perhaps you believe in the rapture and uh, in a dispensationalist eschatology, which we'll get to that in a second. Uh, And I'm hoping, I'm trying to believe the best about everyone that holds that position, that you're doing that out of a sense of faithfulness uh, to Scripture 
And I hope that you would understand that what we're setting forth is the same, that we're, we're doing out a sense of faithfulness to scripture. And again, the faith delivered once for all to the saints. So my biography, <laughs> I, I really feel like I grew up in, you know, growing up in Virginia and then going to my undergrad at Liberty University, which if you're familiar with uh, the Tim LaHaye novels, Left Behind, uh, which is one of the most the best selling series of books of all time. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say it's like top five in Christian books, which to it's me is really is, popular. It, it's yeah. pretty depressing. Um, yeah. But but there is wildly popular books, and he was very much involved at the school. was was a, a big donor. He's since uh, passed on in the last few years, and so I was very much into this uh, rapture. When you say into this, do you mean like it was just in your, you were just around it? Or I, I, I was around it. I was a, a evangelist for it, a, a propagator of it. I mean, oh, okay, I, so I, mem- I remember being, uh, I was a weird little kid. I remember being, <laughs> I remember being vividly like 11 years old and telling my friends during recess, I cannot wait for uh, the millennial kingdom, the literal thousand year reign of Christ on earth. So to give you, I just want to give you the broad strokes. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So based off of, and I'm going to argue off an erroneous interpretation of really two, three passages, but it's really two passages because you have it in Matthew 24 and then you have it in Luke 17. So based off some words of Jesus about uh, probably mostly focus on the destruction of Jerusalem and then also in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter uh, 4, verses 16 and 17, you get this idea that there's this sort of uh, double return of Christ. So some things are going to happen uh, in the world, in the Middle East, and then, uh, <laughs> I mean, a lot of it is definitely yeah. connected to what's going on sure. uh, in uh, Israel, uh, the modern state of Israel in particular. And so... this uh, You mean, so connecting to... Like how, how folks in the communities that are interested in, in this kind of end times or eschatology, they look towards what's happening in the nation state of Israel as it's currently configured yes, as signs of what's going to happen. Is that what you're saying? Yes, because let me just back up before I kind of give you the general timeline. Dispensational. I'm sorry, general timeline. The general, the general timeline of the eschaton. I'm just gonna kind of touch on. Oh man, <laughs> how, 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 <laughs> oh, it, how it usually go. works. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Is in dispensational dispensationalism. It's that God works uh, different ways with different peoples in different eras, and sure. so so there's an emphasis on the discontinuity. So. And there's different kinds of dispensationalists, but typically what happens is there's this sharp dividing line with how God deals with and relates to the children of Abraham according to the flesh and how God relates to the church. So most dispensationalists would believe, if not all of them, that in the Old Testament, the promises made to Abraham have to be literally fulfilled to ethnic Israel, descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, and that they're not spiritually or theologically applied to Christ and the church necessarily. Okay. And so um, that that would be the connection of why things happening in the Middle East are important. That doesn't sound correct. 
It's not correct. Okay. Because if if you read, I think that's exactly what the book of Galatians is about. I was going to say, that doesn't seem to line up with what Paul writes, but go ahead. It, it doesn't, but, but that's what motivates a lot of this. And okay. so you have, um, well, I'll just go ahead and say it. You have in the 19th century, uh, a man by the name of John Darby, who's one of the leaders in the Plymouth Brethren movement, who... Uh, in a way, the, the rapture becomes this way to, to to get the church out of the way. <laughs> you know, this is a cynical interpretation. To get the church out of the way so that God can get back to dealing with Israel. Okay. To dealing, to dealing with the Jews. And so, so in the end times, God is fulfilling his promises to Israel according to the flesh. It's some of what's going on. And again, like anything else, it's hard to talk about dispensationalism. You have to talk about dispensationalisms. But well, hold on, because we... <laughs> I want to get to the. I want to talk about what the rapture is. You're like you're like that meme of of Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with your I'm going too far. Red lines on the wall, man. Uh, maybe you could <laughs> like it's a beautiful mind or something right now. Um, like John Nash. Okay, well, you keep saying this word rapture. Okay, what does that mean? What is a rapture? It, it uh, the word means to be to be caught up. So. It comes most directly from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, okay. which says, I'll just read it, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are left alive will be snatched up with them on clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So John Darby and then... I'll throw out some names, you know, D.L. Moody, if you've heard of ever. Heard oh, of sure. It. Like Moody Mo- Bible College in yep, Chicago. That's, sure. Uh, and then uh, the C.I. Schofield, the Schofield Reference Bible, yeah, yeah. which is probably the most popular uh, study Bible of all time. Sure. And perhaps uh, the person most responsible for propagating rapture theology okay. in the United States, which as an aside... I, I do think it's a uniquely American theological phenomenon. Not that it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, but it's it's kind of uh, our claim to fame, if you will. <laughs> Hooray. And so the, the rapture of belief that there will be a time before the final return of Christ. You'll hear covenant the, theologians perhaps um, maybe make a little bit of a dig. They call this the double return of Christ. Okay. So Christ... Trumpet sound. I guess they would think there's a literal trumpet sound, and then the Christians would dis. Those who are um, dead in Christ, their their corpses or their remains, wherever they may be, would meet their souls in the air, and they'd go to heaven. And those who are alive and remain, um, who are Christians, would disappear. So I mean, perhaps you've seen a bumper sticker that says. <laughs> You know, in case of the rapture, this car will be empty. That's all, yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> that's not great. So that's what that would that would be sort of the hard start to the eschaton. Okay, that, so I'm gonna do this. I, we, we've Matt, got a lot of events to talk about. Okay, is Father Matt has to get start to it. a timeline? I'm actually gonna write on my paper that step one is rapture. Okay. Being caught up in the air now. Well, now I have to stop you. Oh, man. Because gosh, what? it could be step one. There are different opinions within rapture theology about when the rapture would occur. Okay. So you have, because at some point, 
let's not line it up. You have rapture, then you have the seven-year tribulation, which is the 70th week of, there's 70 uh, weeks of years prophesied uh, by oh, the prophet Daniel. Daniel. Yeah, okay. And then you have Armageddon, which usually most people are putting that at the end of the tribulation. The battle of Armageddon, right? Yes. Yeah. Then you have the actual like return of Christ and glory. That's why it's it's kind of facetiously called that double return because it kind of comes halfway down the rapture. Then seven years later, there's Armageddon, the actual return of Christ. And then we have, and I'm skipping a lot of stuff. I can't write I, I'm, this fast I'm enough. I'm giving man. you like the bare skeleton. Okay. Then you have the thousand year reign of Christ. That's a literal thousand year reign. And then you have... Uh, Satan loose from the bottomless pit, usually the final battle, the great white throne judgment, and then eternity. So, okay. <laughs> everyone's, clicked, everyone's clicked off this by now. I do feel like a beautiful mind right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, maybe and then, so okay. you put the rapture first, but yeah. then are you a pre-trib mid-trib or post-trib. So some people believe the rapture is before the tribulation. Some believe it's in the middle of the tribulation. It's just at some point during that seven-year period. Then some believe uh, it's after the tribulation. Okay. Well, how 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 would you know how, what data, what, what would you read, or how would you know when to have an opinion? Uh, they, well, some of it's just trying to make sense of like what makes sense within the system. So if you believe that they're um, within the system itself, I don't think the system ultimately makes much sense. But if you believe in the post-tribulation rapture, then you've basically erased the doctrine of the rapture because you're saying the return of Christ is at the end of the tribulation. So you wouldn't have a double return in that scheme uh, unless you think they like fly up and then they kind of like come back down and then Christ returns. Does that make sense? It probably doesn't. No. <laughs> then the, what I'm saying is the rapture and the return of Christ wouldn't be separate events necessarily in the post-tribulation. But if you think it's actually a separate event from the return of Christ, okay. then so like, wh- wh- where, on, where do on. you... So they're really trying to take Daniel and Revelation... And make a timeline. Okay. So what you're saying is then that in this system, yes. before the second advent, yes. inaugurating the fullness of Christ's kingdom, yes. Jesus makes a pit stop yes. and says, hey, kids, get in the car. Yep. Everybody goes and just chills until Jerusalem comes? or It would be basically, uh, they would argue... <laughs> There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the children of God don't have to go through the tribulation, okay. which I would argue is very different than perhaps what you see in Matthew 24, because it seems like Jesus is telling his disciples to be ready yeah. for difficult times. I think the destruction of Jerusalem is probably mostly in view. I'm not saying there's not like, a, you know, prophecy can work like mountain peaks where there's approximate fulfillment that's, that's closer sure. And then there's like an ultimate theological and usually Christological fulfillment uh, down the road, if you will. Sure. Yeah. We're in the weeds, pal. So do you want to know about the millennial kingdom? Obviously. All right. So (laughs) (laughs) because 
the way you would do it is you'd say, you know, I'm a pre, I'm pre-tribulational, pre-millennial in my eschatology. Okay. Before you go any further. Yeah. You will explain what all of that means. So okay. let me write that down. A pre-millennial. Pre-tri- no, pre-tribulational. Tribulational. Wow. Pre-millennial. Pre-millennial. Okay. Um, yeah, eschatology. Okay. Okay. So, what does that refer to? What is pre-tribulational? Pre-tribu- pre-tribulational, that means that you believe that the rapture is happening prior to the tribulation. Okay, so tribulation, pre-tribulational means... The rapture, rapture is happening prior to the seven-year tribulation. Prior to seven-year tribulation. Dear reader, I am learning so much. Okay. I uh, try to teach this and like... Oh two, oh three. I tried to teach this to middle schoolers because again, I was like really, really into it. Sure. Well, there's a lot to attend. I don't know. I really can't figure out how this is compelling. I'm sorry. Okay. And then pre-millennial, that means that you believe that the return of Christ is prior return of Christ to a literal is prior to a literal thousand year reign of Christ on earth. Wow. Which itself precedes the final state which is eternity eternity okay what whatever that looks like so there's a there's a, a reign of christ for there's stuff years. that happens during that literal thousand year reign okay um but, but yeah the, but that's so jesus is on the throne yep and then on the throne yeah but then there's you know satan's like bound in the bottomless pit when during the during the millennial kingdom, okay, which it doesn't make a lot of sense, but yep, keep going. <laughs> so that's premillennialism. Okay, so you can move, you can be pre, mid, post on the tribulation, but then I would say eh, every dispensational is premillennial because there's other kinds of millennialisms. Like, I'm, I'm a millennial. Yeah, you are, but you're. I would. You are. Amillennial. So amillennial, you have the alpha privative, which negates the word millennial. So you're saying you don't, that you're not a scribe. When the book of Revelation talks about a thousand year reign of Christ and the yeah. apocalypse of John, you're not saying that that's actually some literal 1000 year period, but you're saying that's, that's a way of describing a long period of time, right. namely what's going on now, but between the advents and, um, or what what has gone on in the world through the through the redemptive story? Because, like, for example, and again, there's a lot of um, double, if not triple, meanings in biblical prophecy. You know, the the woman that gives birth to the child in the book of Revelation, it's like obviously Mary giving birth to Jesus. The woman is both Mary and the church, and so that's not talking about some like other woman like Mm. thousands of years in the future but then also is it is referencing the eschaton in the sense of um like the struggle between uh good and evil and satan being fully and finally vanquished at the last day uh the i like to say the full implementation of the achievement of calvary okay um yeah the the completion of Christ's victory on the cross is when so, at the last day when, when he, when he returns to, to judge the living and the dead. So amillennialism is, is where like you would fall. I would fall most like almost all the church fathers would fall. 
um, where it's it's saying, guys, this is talking theologically. It's not talking about a literal thousand year reign. Sure. Uh, and then post millennialism uh, <clears throat> would mean that Christ returns after the millennial kingdom. They would again not necessarily make it a thou- a literal thousand year reign, but it, it, they would they would think of the someone who's post millennial would think of the millennium strictly as the age of the church. Okay, and that the influence of the church is going to continue and continue and we're going to eventually usher in uh the the eschaton so the return of christ would be uh after this millennial period okay um i'm a millennial which is which is again there's different types but the critique of post millennialism is that you know there's a critique yeah, <laughs> would be that you know things don't necessarily go in a in a straight line, and it does seem to indicate in scripture that things aren't going to necessarily be great and getting better and better and better before Christ returns. Sure. There, there seems to be there's going to be unrest and birth pangs and wars and rumors of wars and all these things. So, if I could try to synthesize, because we got to get back to the rapture, we really shouldn't have got into everything else, but it's just. I couldn't resist. You really have no filter and no self-control. Yeah. So, Father Matt, after that long excursus, just perhaps describe, like, you know, Reading that Thessalonians passage, I think that okay. I, if I read that just sure. in context, even I would be like, "Oh yeah, it makes sense. The rapture makes sense." Sure. So tell us why you think, uh, and perhaps why the church has not really thought about the rapture, at, like like our friends, the Schofields, etc. Okay. I'll just get into the text in a second because I think if we just look at the text. It's that's help. That's super helpful. Um, Number one, I mean, the rapture was nowhere to be found before the 19th century. You mean in terms of how people understood? Like it did not exist as a thing. Okay, so it just wasn't how people thought of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the the doctrine of the rapture, belief in the rapture, is absolutely an innovation. Okay. You will not find it in the fathers. Okay. You'll find some different opinions on Revelation. And, sure. Um, I would say most of the fathers are without a doubt what we would now, this is anachronistic, we would call it, um, we're reading our categories back into their, their ways of thinking, but would be all millennial. Uh, Tertullian uh, notably uh, was premillennial, but that doesn't mean he was a dispensationalist or that he, he believed in the rapture. Just he, he took that thousand year comment from Re- okay. Revelation uh, literally. So the problem is it, it has uh, really no S- no attestation in the ancient church whatsoever. Okay, so the church, the, the ancient church didn't read the Gospels and First Thessalonians yeah. and mm-hmm. the rest of the text yeah. of the New Testament, including Revelation, and think, oh, we're going to go out, we're going we're gonna to be zapped sure. out of our chariots. Sure. So they didn't think that. And they didn't, they definitely didn't think of First Thessalonians in particular as describing some event 
separate from the return of Christ. It definitely, whatever Paul is saying, he's saying it about the return of Christ, not some not, other event that happens prior to. Not the pit stop where they all get in the Sure. Okay. Not, yeah. Uh, the double return. So you have, and I played for you the, the famous song, uh, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it talks, it's, it's a reference to uh, Matthew 24 and to Luke uh, 17, where, you know, one will be taken and the other left and, you know, uh, two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left and, and all these things. And, oh, there's the rapture. You have these people right. that are doing things and one's being taken and one's left. But the problem with that, I mean, in Matthew 24, it's not necessarily as clear because it, there is this language of gathering the elect, but you still have this um, comparison to the days of Noah. But the the um, corresponding passage in Luke 17, it, I think, makes it impossible to think that this is speaking about what we know as the rapture. Because it's talking about uh, one will be taken and the other left. There'll be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, so this is the disciples, mm -hmm. where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Uh. And so the ones being taken are not being taken uh, to heaven. This is, a, this is an image of judgment. Sure. Um, a, a, of whether this is in reference to... Um, the destruction of Jerusalem or to the eschaton that, you know, this is the one being taken. This is an image of, of judgment and, uh, and of death. So it sounds like if you read, if you read the scripture in the context of how it has traditionally been read, yes, that the reading from Thessalonians has to do with the ingathering of God's faithful people in Christ at his second advent. Mm -hmm. So it refers to the culmination of the eschaton rather than some kind of first step of it or first, second, third step. Right. Again, I think it's working on a lot of different levels. Sure. It, he's it's, I think whenever there's, there's eschatological statements in the gospels, especially in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is speaking about what's happening at that present moment. Yeah. Be, because, let me finish this thought. He's speaking about what what's happening right at that moment because the first what we think of as the first advent that's Yahweh's return to Zion. Okay, that that's Israel's day of visitation. It's it's also referring to in certain texts the destruction of Jerusalem, which happens in AD seventy, and then at the same time it's talking about the last day. Um, so it's all three of those things happening, and a lot of the parables. Uh, in the New Testament, like the parable of the talents, we tend to think of that and we put ourselves in the position of the one investing the talents and the master going away is the period in which we're now living. I'm not saying it's not that at all, but we, we tend to think of those as like end times parables. Mm -hmm. But originally, this is Jesus saying that, you know, this is Yahweh's return to Zion and Yahweh is in your midst and in the, the person of Christ. And He's calling you to account and have you been faithful? And for the most part, they were found wanting. Right. They were like the one who took the talent and, and and hid it and buried it and didn't, you know, get any interest on it. 
Um, so, so that's an important thing to understand. Let me go over to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, because that's a huge one. There's a great article that I would uh, commend to anyone listening. It's by N.T. Wright, and at risk of this turning into like an N.T. Wright fan podcast, <laughs> uh, he wrote this article in 2001 called Farewell to the Rapture. And I think he has the greatest line, maybe of anything he's ever written. He calls the rapture the pseudo-theological version of Home Alone. I like it. Yeah, it, it's it's really, really uh, interesting. Uh, but he's talking about you know things that are problematic uh, with rapture theology. And he, he unpacks uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. And he breaks it down really quickly. And what Paul is doing, he's arguing, is mixing these meta- metaphors from... Uh, Moses descending Mount Sinai with the Torah. Uh, he's echoing Daniel 7. Whenever we get language of Son of Man and, mm-hmm. and the, cl- the, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, by the way, is not about uh, a descent from heaven to earth. This is the language of the prophet Daniel, who the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Where does he go in that prophecy? He is shares the throne with the ancient of days, so it's actually about the the doctrine of the ascension. Sure, and, and Jesus is, and before that, because uh, I learned this from Doctor John Barrett, you can't separate uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his exaltation there from the ascension. That's actually Jesus being high and lifted up on the cross. That's part of the doctrine of the ascension. That's the sure. begin. That that's his coronation right. and his enthronement is on the cross, even prior to you know his. His ascension into heaven after his 40 days post-resurrection with the disciples. And, and so what's happening there is when we get this language of the clouds and the air, that's Daniel 7 language of actually the ascent of the Son of Man from earth to heaven. So, so he's saying it's, it's this language of Moses and Sinai. It's this language of Daniel 7. And it's also this, this language of an emperor visiting a colony. It's real brief. Let me just read the master, if you will, instead of trying to paraphrase him. He says, first, Paul echoes the story of Moses coming down the mountain with the Torah. The trumpet sounds, a loud voice is heard, and after a long wait, Moses comes to see what's been going on in his absence. Second, he echoes Daniel 7, in which the people of the saints of the Most High, that is, the one like a son of man, are vindicated over their pagan enemy by being raised up to sit with God in glory. So this is language of victory and Christian people at the last day sharing in the victory fully of Jesus Christ. Um, Third, Paul conjures up images of an emperor visiting a colony or province. The citizens go out to meet him in open country and then escort him into the city. Paul's image of the people meeting the Lord in the air should be read with the assumption that the people will immediately turn around and lead the Lord back to the newly remade world. So they're going out to greet sure. uh, the coming king, the coming Caesar, the coming emperor, our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying Paul's mixing his metaphors. He's using this language about the eschaton, which, of course, he makes sure to let people know. I believe in the second coming. Yeah. I, that's the thing. That's that's part of what it means to be Christian. It's clearly taught in scripture, but we can't read this text. And I would add to what N.T. Wright's saying is the church hasn't historically read this text in particular in a woodenly 
like literalistic way. Right. It, he, the, the text is not meant to be turned into a, a system or, um, you know, a timeline that Father Matt, before we began, showed me a series of, of really intense uh, diagrams that were profoundly unhelpful to me <laughs> as a novitiate in this new, new mm-hmm. world. Well, I think, um, I think we've kind of said what uh, you've helped me understand why this doesn't work. One, I'm thoroughly confused <laughs> Two, uh, but just, uh, which I'm kidding, but, um, not, uh, no, it doesn't work because, um, things like rapture theology don't seem to line up with the history of the church's, uh, interpretation of scripture, uh, that they're kind of profoundly unhelpful in how we regard our experience of the current faith as we understand it and have received it and provide for us probably a, a really unhelpful view of what the end times might be like. Hmm. I think that's a good summary. And I think the the problem is to take two verses and because I think it's been demonstrated not only today, but by many scholars, much more depth than I, that, that to take those passages in the gospel to be speaking of some rapture event, is just way out of context. Sure. So, okay, we've got these two verses. And so we're going to build an eschatology that, I would argue stands in diametrical opposition to like the clear teaching of Christianity, which is focused on the resurrection, Mm -hmm. which is focused not on escape from this world through some sort of secret gnosis, um, but is focused on the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Um, Like the creed. Yeah, there, there's a, a underneath the rapture theology, and perhaps not even intentionally, there can be this dualistic, escapist view of the world and view of the human person that leaves me scratching my head saying, okay, where's the resurrection? Where's the victory of God that God's redeeming and renewing and judging? Yeah both in the negative sense, but also in the positive sense of, if you read the book of Judges, the judges were the saviors. Yeah. How is he judging and saving this world? Right. I think um, the thing that really bothers me, like when, it, you know, I haven't really thought much about the rapture uh, just because I haven't had to. So thank you, Father Matt, to helping me uh, with my understanding. But the thing about rapture is it doesn't seem to really appreciate or really care at all about um, God's good creation. It seems to be anti-body, like it seems to be anti, you know, God's intention for, um, you know, the things he made. Um, Or maybe I'm just misreading it. Um, But I guess the worst thing about that is the sense that... um, But the idea of a, of a second, second coming is really the double return blowing my mind. Sort of like, I'm here. There he is. And then oh, no, he's is. gone. We'll see him in seven yeah. years. Yeah. And I guess the question we would ask is, or I would ask you is why do short put shortly? Why do we care? I mean, 
Uh, you care, obviously, because it was uh, it has been a part of your autobiography. Mm-hmm. It's affected you greatly. Well, I think we should care because, I mean, as you started out talking about the the beatific vision and, and seeing God and Him uh, dwelling with us and in us and and us and Him, that that's our goal. And then, as I just said, the the hope of uh, the resurrection, uh, the redemption of our bodies, right. of God putting the world right, not us like leaving the world in some sort of uh, escape pod. It matters to me because I, I, I think you end up with a really bad, again, like view of the human person, sure. particularly the body, uh, a view of uh, the world, and it's right because the world is something that you don't care about because you're just going to leave right and i yeah i mean nt wright talks about this in this article you really should it's called just google nt wright farewell to the rapture he says um well why are we going to care about like this world or care about the the planet or the environment because god's going to throw space time and matter in the trash can it's your favorite one of my favorite nt wright sayings <laughs> and and he's absolutely uh right on that it's bigger than just like environmentalism but even our care for our, how, how does it affect like our care for our own bodies how does it affect how we deal with with corpses like when when christians die do we treat are we going to treat our own bodies are we going to treat the bodies of the deceased with with dignity and care as a as one who was created in the very image of God, who is destined for resurrection and God's renewed world, or it doesn't matter, disembodied bliss somewhere. Sure, we're wearing our Earth suits today; they'll be gone <laughs> tomorrow. And it, right, we're, we're, it, it matters because I I think even though it's not intentional, this is, I'm, it's profoundly unChristian, and and I want to encourage people. And, and I, I guess I want people to know if you're, and I'm kind of laughing at myself in a way because it's like, this is a podcast that would have been relevant in like 1998. <laughs> Probably most people Maybe, listening, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like no one, no one cares about that anymore. But I, I do want to make it clear. Like this is at best a eschatological speculation. It has no grounding in scripture and it has no grounding in the ancient church. It, this is not something that's part and parcel of the faith delivered sure. once for all to the saints. Quite the opposite. So if you're laboring on this thing like, oh, this is really weird. It's okay. Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And I know we talked about premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism. Well, I want to talk to you guys about panmillennialism, which what? is... It'll all pan out in the end, <laughs> which is a really bad joke. That's a bad joke. Well, uh, again, we want to mind the scriptures. Yeah. We want to understand them, but there's so much we're not going to understand until we, we see it and we're going, oh, yeah, that was it. Yeah. And just to kind of, <laughs> uh, as we look towards the sermon first pass, I think it's helpful to maybe rehearse the cocktail napkin again. Because like, if we, we might say no thanks to the rapture and all this business with tribulations and millennial kingdoms and everything, obviously not ignoring all of that stuff, but in this kind of scheme that we've, that has been cooked up, but what is something that actually works and it is in line with the tradition of the church and mm-hmm. is something that both yeah. uh, takes into account 
God's justice that takes into account the, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the new heavens and the earth, of, of the entire universe being, as uh, so many of the Brits say, brought to rights. Um, is there something that the church has said that is helpful and hopeful? And the answer is yes. It is that Christ will come again the ju- to judge the living and the dead, um, both to life and to death. The resurrection to life is a function of the new heavens and the new earth. That the heavenly city of Jerusalem will be established fully, and this new Jerusalem is where the worship of the Lamb will take cl- take place into eternity, and that his uh, our bodies will be perfected for the end that we may enjoy and participate in the beatific vision of Christ and of God. Uh, so that what is the end hope of all humanity but God himself in our presence, in our midst? Which is, when you read the book of Revelation and get through all the weird, crazy stuff and get into the you know late teens and early 20s of the, of the chapter where it all kind of does pan out, the guarantee is clear. God's presence with the resurrected and perfected people of God uh, and where pain is no more and sad, sadness is no, for, no more, there is no tears, no suffering, uh, and that the unbroken colloquy of God is the true goal of all humankind. Amen. Well, as we finish up, oh, this episode, wow. Uh, as we finish up today, we want to look at the sermon uh, first pass. Um, the collect is uh, is wonderful. You heard it earlier. I love this um, this line. Give us the liberty of that abundant life which you have made known to us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father Matt, what are the texts for the week? We're going to be in Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 9a, or you have the option of going 1 through 12. The psalm is Psalm uh, a portion of Psalm 112. The epistle is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and you can add on 13 through 16 if you would like. Um, and then the gospel is Matthew chapter 5. Verses 13 through 20, which is a portion of Jesus' famous sermon on the mount. Right. One of the most famous sermons ever. Maybe the most famous sermon. (laughs) Most listened to and most ignored, perhaps, (laughs) sadly. (laughs) Well, he knew it would be tough when he preached it. Um, You know, look at some of these lessons and the way they work together. They're just begging for a sermon homily or whatever that is particularly, I think, um, evocative of that idea called evangelism. And especially when your Isaiah passage begins with shout, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people the rebellion in the house of Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of telling us that the church needs to be evangelized, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that it's that uh, the sin of the world is not just outside the walls of the church, but there is sin inside the church that needs to be repented of. Mm. Me being a sinner myself. Sure. Um, yeah, and there's such 
and I know that's not the point of the text perhaps, but there's such evangelistic power and the repentance of the church. Yeah. Like just wanting to live lives of holiness as the body of Christ uh, before almighty God will reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Even, even without some concerted programmatic effort to bring people in. Yeah. When we're faithful to the Lord, that, that is evangelistic. I'm always impressed at really, like really well thought out evangelistic programs built by parishes or big churches or denominations or stuff like that. Um, but I'm, I'm even more impressed by, um, the church being evangelists by the holiness of their living. Um, and you see this, I think in, in, um, in, in this Isaiah passage, uh, such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is there such a fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down like a head in a bull rush into lion sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast a day except the Lord? I not is not this fast the fast I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thong the thong, thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house? Christian holiness uh, is public holiness. Mm. Uh, and I think God has always wanted his people to be, uh, penitent for their, the sin, their own, you know, the sins of the flesh to be, um, you know, aware of their need for God's mercy, but also working in community to, uh, to help those who need help. And how do you, how do you tell that a people are following after Jesus if not by their working works, by their working of charity in their lives uh, and together. Yeah, that reminds me of the end of James 1. Yeah. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Right. So a lot of times we want to pick, I'm going to be a holiness Christian. Right. I'm going to keep myself morally pure and do things that you know are in accordance with the law of Christ. Uh, or I'm going to be a justice Christian. I'm going to go out there and and you know serve those for whom Christ died. Right. And it's both. Yeah, we care about holiness and justice. Yeah, it has to be both. And I think that also plays into uh, Jesus's wonderful words in, in Matthew five. Jesus said, "You are the salt of the earth, and the salt has lost its taste. How can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown and trampled underfoot." So, it's either salt that preserves food and brings flavor to food and does all the cool things that salt can do and they were aware of all the things that some most of the things that salt could do back then it's either salt or it's dirt Mm -hmm. right and so uh if we are salt then we adorn the world we adorn the world by the beauty of the holiness of the church whether that's the beauty we have in our sanctuary and our and our naves but certainly more to the point the beauty of holiness the beauty of our charity, um, the beauty of acting as if Christ is our Lord mm-hmm. in the world, uh, and not putting on putting on airs, um, and not creating this this fast that is kind of reprehensible to God, because it's mm-hmm. it's not doing what God wanted us to do. Again, we're you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting the lamp, puts it on the bushel basket, but on the lampstand it gives light to all in the house in the same way that your light shine before others 
so that you may see that your good works give glory to your Father in heaven. The work of the church, which is in many ways eschatological, like we've been talking about, um, we are bringing this gospel to the world that needs to hear hope. And for us to do that means that we are lights in the world. We live hopeful lives. We live way, in ways that um, show the light of the gospel, that show the light of, of, of heaven's glory, um, because the world around us is just kind of dark and sucky. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that we want to abandon it. Far from it. We want to fill the world with, with God's light. That's what, he, that's what I'm going to do anyway. <laughs> that's good. I think this, for my sermon, it really tees me up to just reiterate stuff I've been preaching about the last three or four weeks, you know, with, with Epiphany Tide and that a wonderful collect a few weeks ago about being uh, illumined by word and sacraments. Yeah. Uh, so that, why? So that Christ may be known, worshipped, and obeyed yeah. to the ends of the earth. And been teaching about, you know, what does it mean to be uh, an image bearer and trying to emphasize also the the continuity uh, between the call of Adam and Eve, the call of Abraham and the call of the church, which we see this all right here of, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is on a mount because this is the giving of the law of Christ. This right. is meant to call us back to the giving of the law of, right. of Moses. And He's saying this is in continuity. This is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. He says, don't think I came to abolish. I'm, I'm fulfilling the law. I'm fulfilling the prophets. And the human being and Abraham and his family, known as Israel, and now us, the church, the renewed Israel, the new Israel, we're called to be the light of the world. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. But then he also says, I am the light of the world. Right. So we're these little lights pointing to the light, capital L, Jesus Christ, which is exactly what he says in Matthew 5, 16, is as we live as the light, as we're that city set on a hill, uh, that one, we ha- we're we not hiding our lamp under a bushel, is that people are going to see our light. And what's going to happen? They're going to say, oh, you guys are so great. No, they're going to see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. That's evangelism. And the way the way that we live as the salt of the earth and the light of the world and the way that we reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually preach and live the gospel. And the right. way that we evangelize, we go to the epistle and we're like Paul and we say, for I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And to trust in the power of the gospel and the efficacy of the spirit of God, which I mean, Paul to, I think be this self-aware because for whatever reason, I'm really impressed with Paul's intellect and rhetoric. <laughs> sure. But the church at Corinth was not. Yeah. Well, and they had problems. Paul did this, uh, I think, on purpose. Maybe so. I think so. For, I think there's a sense in which he says, you know, I did. I came to you with weakness and fear and trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on the power of God. Um, we know a decent amount of priests listen to this. Whenever I read this, I always think, what do I want? Do I want a successful ministry? People are like, you're competent. <laughs> you're skilled. 
you're a good preacher, or would I would I be willing to trade that? And perhaps people think of me as Corinth thought of Paul, but my ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right. And I don't really get any of the credit and I die and I'm forgotten and th- and that's okay. Yeah, there's a certain uh there's a certain <laughs> nobility in being forgotten be- if if you're like doing things as we are ought to, as we ought to in our calling, mm-hmm. right? Relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to to bring the word of life to the people, mm-hmm. uh for us to enjoy the word of life through the yeah. power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the, the, he has such a confidence in Christ and in the gospel and yeah. in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's and I'm, I'm, if, envious, I'm envious of that. Yeah. I want to have that kind of confidence. It's almost as if he's an apostle. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to do something like that. Again, just reiterating, we're the light of the world. This is what that means. And the way that we spread the light is by always carrying around our body the death of the Lord Jesus by preaching uh, Christ crucified and, and word and deed and sacrament, uh, lifting him up high on the cross so that all may be drawn unto him. Mm. Dear listener, that mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be out on the out on the street corner. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to be going door, door to door, although it might. Um, but um, just know that uh, when you are when you are engaged in your own holiness and when you are seeking after greater union with Christ and his church, you can't help uh, but spread the good news of Christ. So, well, it's been a wonderful afternoon with you, Father Matt. I, As always, we pray that our work has been uh, an edifying experience and encouragement to you. Um, we pray that uh, you would um, continue to Listen to us uh, and perhaps even find us on Patreon when we get our account going. (laughs) (laughs) Shameless plug. Yeah, well, you know, we got to. Uh, As we look towards this coming Sunday, let us pray in the words our Savior Christ hath taught us. Our Father, who Who art in in heaven, heaven, hallowed hallowed be thy name. Thy thy kingdom kingdom come, thy will be done. done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Catch you soon. All right. Blessings. See you later. Bye. David? Where'd you go? He's been raptured! (laughs) (laughs) He's disappeared!